and welcome to the first in a nice short series that we've got for you coming up on Vet Chat. And one of the most powerful and, and resonating responses we had to every one of our episodes was being to the episode about diversity. And I know from a personal perspective, I took a lot of learnings from that and had to go away and do a lot of research to, to educate myself. And seemingly a lot of you in the veterinary community also did exactly the same thing, which to me is great because actually it shows that it drummed a message home. And I know one of the the things that we discussed very briefly in that was access to the profession. So we thought, actually, we need to go and drill down a little bit into these topics a bit more. So under no pressure at all, Daniela, who is current president into her last month of presidency at the BVA, in what we are all aware has been really a very quiet year for the organisation. There's been uh, not much for her to do. And, you know, as, as has been a concern for many people over the years, you know, really twiddling her thumbs through, through the last 12 months. And there's, of course, no sense of sarcasm about what I've said there. Daniela, it's great to have you to have you again and looking at, you know, what we can sort of drill down into as, as diversity in the profession. And I know that an access point to the profession is something that we, we have, have both privately and, and publicly talked about previously. And you and I have, of course, got very different journeys into the profession. I'll give you mine in a minute, but I just thought, Daniela, could you describe, you know, that sort of journey from deciding to wanting to be a vet to actually, you know, getting into vet school? You know, that's, I think it's certainly one that, that testifies resilience. But, but if you could tell people, you know, how you got about getting in and every challenge you face, that would be brilliant. I almost feel like I should start singing like I'm in the sound of music. Let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> anyway, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, yeah, so my story. I am an inner city kid. Uh, grew up in central London. My parents are immigrants, um, but I was brought up in a single parent family. So my mum's a cleaner and we have no history of anybody going to university, let alone any science background. And I knew when I was very young um, and it was because of a fish that I wanted to become a vet. So (laughs) so we had a pet fish uh, that one day started swimming upside down. I now recognise probably swim bladder or something of the like. But I was very, very, very upset and I forced my poor mother to stay up all night poking this fish. And when I woke (laughs) up... And when I woke up in the morning and the fish was still alive, I was determined I never wanted another animal to suffer. And that's why I decided to become a vet. But I was tiny at this point. And I guess uh, my determination continued. But for reasons that I suspect we'll get to as this conversation goes, that the the journey wasn't straightforward. So, you know, I did very well at, at GCSE, went to an inner city comp, went to a sixth form that entry at that point was based on your attainment GCSE. And I thought, right, let's do this because it might give me a bit of help, might make my, my journey a bit smoother. Oh, how wrong was I? For various reasons, uh, I didn't get the grades, which I think we can come back to later as well. And in the end, it took me five attempts and a completely separate degree to get into vet school. So I guess that I had many challenges. I think to me, the overriding positive and constant was actually my mother saying to me, I don't care what you do with your life as long as you're happy. And to me, being happy meant becoming a vet. And so whilst we didn't have the money, you know, she didn't have the background to help with 
and getting you there, there was always that support. There was never a wavering of support saying you need to stop now and you need to think about something else. So yeah, that's my story. Yeah. And I think that's almost the polar opposite in terms of education journey, but very, very similar in terms of familial support to my journey. And I, I was really lucky, you know, I mean, similar inner city kid, although a much smaller city in Liverpool. And I decided when I was nine, watching an episode of Vets in Practice, or maybe it was Vet School. I think it was Vets in Practice at that stage. Where, you know, oh, mate, it was like, you know, <laughs> those of you that have grown up in the YouTube generation, like you, you used to actually have to tune in to the TV at the right time. Uh, absolutely. Otherwise you were screwed. There was no catch up. There was no, nothing. nothing. It was like, you know, I think it was like 8 p.m. on a Sunday night. And at that stage, I was still at the age where it's like, right, okay, bath get ready. Okay, we're down. It's eight o'clock, Sam, we can have a cup of hot chocolate, unlike now where we're all sat there with a glass of wine on a Sunday night. Uh, and you sat down and watched this Vets in practice. And I remember distinctly, this shows how relatively rusty my farm knowledge is, but it was a cow with an LDA, but it was a two vet job. So those of you who can do DAs single-handedly, as I'm sure many farm practitioners can nowadays, great. But this was a two-sided job. Frankly, I thought it was a little bit overkill. Of course you did. At the time, I was like, surely they could do this surgical procedure quicker and, and more, more cleanly. But that just, that just flipped a switch. And I was just at the local CV primary at that stage, not particularly academic, but also not particularly thick. But my parents, the, the local senior schools around us were all right. I didn't get into like the, the equivalent of the grammar. Like It was a really high-functioning school. A lot of friends from school got in there. They got in. I didn't. But I got offered a place a, a private school on the other side of Liverpool that we were fortunate enough to get a, a little bit of a discount on for taking in a, a little scouse ginger kid it was like come on give, give this kid a chance and and you know what that was at the time I hated it because of like all my mates were going to other schools class size was smaller but I look back with the benefit of hindsight and the opportunities and the doors that that education has opened for me are seismically different to the opportunities that the friends from primary school have got in life. And again, you know, you can sort of throw your toys out a little bit when you're at school, kind of go, oh, my mates are going here and doing that. And everyone lives 45 minutes away. And did I mention that all of their dads drive Ferraris? And, you know, my dad turned up in his Volvo. My dad had a Volvo as well. It was an orange, rusty Volvo and it rained inside. Safe and sturdy. You can't be safe. <laughs> um, yeah. But it was just, and that, that gave me so many opportunities. But I've only realized that. And I was really weirdly ashamed of the opportunity that it gave me. And I was always a bit reticent to say, oh, do you know what? I went to private school. But then I turned up at vet school. And, you know, I, I had to work. I had to properly graft to get my grades. And I scraped them by like one mark. We were the first year to do AS levels and A2s. And I literally scraped it by one mark. But at no way, shape or form did my parents ever say anything other to me, Dan, you'll do it. But you have to put the graft in. Like, you know, I did work experience at Chester Zoo, which was like 45 minutes from our house. And I did a month there. And my dad drove me and picked me up every day. And that is, you know, it's, we go on about the sacrifices that we make to get to vet school. Mm -hmm. But other people around us that we don't identify at the time, because, you, you know, your kids, you're focused in your own little world. But you look back and go, God, you know what? My mum and dad have made. I mean, they have had some dinners out on us over the years. But they opened the door for us. You know, they, my mum's entire salary went on sending us to school. And that was a conscious decision they made. A, a decision they could make. Because the, the flip for me was I managed to get, I think, two weeks work experience on a 
farm and I ended up having and actually I did another one on a stable so the stable one's interesting I couldn't get any London stables to let me do work experience with them because it's not what you know it's who you know in those sorts of situations and the only place that did was a place called Whiteleaf which meant I was on the train for an hour and a half to get to these stables in the morning and an hour and a half back but even the train ticket for that was a stretch I did the same to get on I actually managed to get an abattoir placement, which now is really difficult to get. But at the time I managed to get it and it was somewhere in Essex. Again, I had to get a train out, walk an hour and then walk an hour back to the station. So, yeah, you're right. We often don't see those that have helped us get to where we need to go. Mm. And I think one of the things that st- it still resonates with me to this day, and I had, you know, I, as, as at the time you were apply- allowed to apply to four vet schools and, and I applied to the two Scottish ones and got straight rejections, Bristol and got an interview. I remember getting grilled at Bristol about dairy farming and ended up turning around to the chap and saying, mate, um, you do realize that like, you know, I'm in the middle of Liverpool, like the closest I get to cows most of the time is Tesco's, you know, other, other um, shopping establishments are available and, and do definitely shop local. (laughs) If only you could all see his face right now. (laughs) But like, you know, it is, and it's the, it's really interesting because of course, like for me, I I look at it and I just go, had I had the opportunity to learn about farm stuff beforehand, I'm fairly sure I loved my farm work and and I got a lot out of it. And I feel as though I could offer a decent service, but pre-vet school, like we went on a farm working holiday as a family. So my mum was an epilepsy nurse specialist and they did a big holiday away in Devon for like two weeks every year. And that, that was basically my farm work experience. I went down and rather than doing all the stuff they were doing with the, the kids for the, the couple of weeks, I just spent the time working on the farm and I did that yep. for two summers. And that was the only exposure I could get to farm work as an inner city kid. Um, but then of course you get to vet school. And I remember like there being a load of these guys who had grown up on farms and done this and that and the other. And you're like, wow, you know, these guys, their experience is just phenomenal. But I think it's really important that as we have these conversations, we don't make people feel bad for having those experiences or Mm. those connections or having gone um, to private school. I think it's really important because often when I have these conversations, uh, people take it as me having an attack, you know, or or it being an attack on people that have been privately educated or have Mm. farming backgrounds or equine backgrounds or whatever. And and that's not at all. But I, I do think when we're talking about increasing access to the profession, we have to acknowledge those sort of extra bits of help that some of people have and accept and there's good evidence behind this that someone's background really does define their chances in terms of outcome and it's why the profession looks the way it does yeah and obviously you talk about a profession looking the way it does for those that don't know can you just give us some of the headline figures if you like of sort of you know what our profession is made up of where do we come from yeah so we are, I don't have the exact stats to, to hand, but we are significantly disproportionately privately educated. Only about three and a half percent of the profession is from a black or minority ethnic group. And our gender is skewed as well. Now we can have a whole conversation about gender, but we are becoming an overwhelmingly female population. And the interesting factor, the reason I do bring that up is that often when we start talking about diversity, people go, but what about the boys or the men? And actually <laughs> that question comes back or that answer comes back to exactly what we'll be talking about, which is access. Yeah. Because we are not in a situation where 
you know, boys from a middle or upper class background or with family background in science or whatever are choosing. It's not that they can't get into vet school. They are choosing not to. Yeah. So to me, we need to reframe, especially around the gender, rather than saying, what about the boys? We need to ask, what about the working class boys, for example? So mm. why? So there are, there are boys that have access that are choosing not to come into the profession, but there are boys that don't even consider the profession. And that's where the skew comes. So yeah, overwhelmingly privately educated. We don't have any form of ethnic diversity, really. And we are heading towards predominantly female profession. So that's where we are at the moment. But there are good reasons for it. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, as a profession, obviously the last two decades have been monumentally destabling isn't the right word um but there's been seismic changes in the profession over the last 20 years like you know i got into vet school in 2002 and god that seems like some of you are in vet school now and thinking about vet school you weren't even born when i got in so you know embrace your youth Yes, um, probably. Oh, <laughs> probably born the year you went to. It's anyway, horrible right, to think about this. It's okay, we're still fine. <laughs> but but yeah, you know, I mean, like when when I got in, you know, there was majority independent practice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so you know, corporate practice wasn't really a thing. But it was very much considered that to go to vet school, you had to be the cream of the cream academically. And I hold my hands up, and those of you that have ever worked with me or come alongside of me will probably, I dare say, agree. I am not the cream of the cream. You know, I'm, I'm intelligent, and I am pragmatic and sensible. But how do we get the message out to wider society? Not, you know, the veterinary profession is tiny, and our touch points with wider society is actually massive. You think of how many consultations we do with people yeah. that have got kids that maybe want to be a vet and so on and so on. we've all had that consult and we're like oh you know would you would you do it again and how many of us have actually got oh, god no or how many of us have said yeah do you know what do this do that the other but how do we get people to understand what you actually need to be a vet so if we step back a second the problem we are facing is not exclusive to the veterinary profession the reason why our profession looks the way it looks isn't necessarily the fault of the profession. It's a systemic problem, but it's something that we need to recognize and accept. So just a couple of things that you said there, you know, we, there's this perception that you have to be academically exceptional to even get into vet school. The application rate at the moment in terms of application to places is two to one. So we're not actually as competitive as most of us think, because when you speak to most people, they'll say the veterinary profession is the hardest one to get into. Not factually correct. When people, when you talk about seismic shift and, and people talk about the gender shift, for example, the percentage of women applying has always been the same. That's a fact. It's just been sort of, it's, it's flipped round in terms of, let me rephrase that. So it was from the beginning, it's been overwhelmingly female applicants, but because of okay. a smaller number of spaces and, and how people were, were accepted, it was an overwhelmingly male population, uh, male profession. As time has gone on, numbers have increased. We have to be clear that the demographics that apply, the demographics that you see in the, in the profession. So, you know, if you look at whether you look at gender, whether you look at ethnicity, whether you look at educational background, they reflect. So it's not that we are having a bias issue at the point of selection. Our problem comes before selection. Our problem comes in talking to kids and getting them to consider it. And there is some really, really good evidence out there as to why it happens. So 
Those of you that spoken to me about this before will have heard about the Aspires project. Have you heard about this, Ben? I've heard it, but I don't yeah. know about it. Yeah. So the Aspires project is something it's run by KCL and it is a longitudinal research project, right? And it has looked at kids and started at like tiny, I think it's somewhere between four and eight years old. And those kids, they follow through and those kids are now at university. And what they've done is they've tracked their attitudes towards STEM subjects and their aspirations and what has actually happened to them. And there is some really, really interesting data that's come out of it, which if we step back reflects perfectly in terms of what we see in our in our profession. So one of their key, so there's a few key findings, but one of them, for example, an interest in science doesn't necessarily translate to science aspirations. So if you ask kids, they really, really enjoy science. That is not the problem. It's not that we don't have kids that enjoy science, but comes back to what you were saying. Kids don't see it as for them. They don't think they have the correct mind. They don't think they're clever enough. They think that it's, uh, you need to be specifically brainy. And so whilst they're interested in it and they see the value in it, the desire to pursue it falls because they have they don't have any self-belief the interesting part is that the whole of the educational system is what patterns that belief in society's belief so and i think if we so if we think about that that's probably where you and i have been lucky because mm. we both saw had an interest and we were both we were both encouraged to do it and despite the fact neither of us saw us, ourselves as clever enough someone said you can do it yeah. So, so that's one aspect. So we have kids out there that would probably love a career in vet medicine, but they don't see it as for them. Mm. You know, they don't look up and see people that look like them. They don't look up and see people that came from their background. So that's one thing. I think a key thing that we've also touched on is science capital. And there's a difference between you and I when it comes to science capital. So science capital is about an individual's science-related exposure. So what around them so do they have people around them that are have science related qualifications do they understand science related stuff do they have a knowledge about science and how it works do they have people who are interested do they have social contacts do they have access to books and things like that yeah. which is where we have a difference you had the access to the social contacts and to the people that could take mm. you i didn't and so let's think about a kid that has i think science is interesting but their only exposure to science is those random science lessons. They don't go home and have books. They don't go home and watch vets in practice. They don't yeah. have parents that can take them to farms. So there's another barrier. So that, and that there is actually an example of the difference between being privately educated and not. Yeah. Because in private education, you said the doors opened, they would have really pushed you. They would have, you know, you would have had smaller class sizes, therefore more interactive science lessons. And so there's that aspect. And that, is a social problem primarily mm. because it doesn't matter how good you make the schools. If you go home and there's nothing there, that's the problem. Interesting thing though. I'm talking a lot. So do interrupt me. Outreach programs. Outreach programs aim to increase a person's science capital by providing role models and by piquing an interest. Mm. But one thing we have to accept is that outreach programs alone have a limited effect which blows some people's mind. But let's think about it. You go into a primary school and you meet a nine-year-old and you enthuse that nine-year-old to become a vet, right? They will, their interest peaks. They'll spend a few weeks reading books, looking on the internet, doing all of this. But then they go home and their parents show no interest mm. or they have no contacts or they don't have a computer so they can't look on the internet or they have no money to buy books so they can't do that. Or the school 
just keeps telling them it's too hard to be a vet. You've piqued that kid's interest, but it just drops off because there's no consistent aspect there. So I think we as a profession often reach for the outreach programs and they are brilliant, but we have to accept that they've got limited reach. Mm. The most interesting aspect I think of this is that the education system in this country is patterned by social inequalities. So it's very much down to how good your teacher is and the funding your school has. So if you are in a school that has high teacher turnover and you've got a different site teacher every term, the likelihood that any form of education is going to, is going to stick and make you interested is pretty low. And that is why I say, let's not ask where are the boys, we ask where are the working class boys, because the boys that go to private school or high attaining state schools have all of this. Mm. They have all the opportunities. A kid that, I went to an all girls school, but you know, a kid that went to a type of, a boy that went to a type of school like mine would have a constant uphill struggle. And there is what we call gatekeeping at, uh, throughout the education system. So, you know, when you said people, you, you think you have to be the creme de la creme to get into vet school. Yeah. This education system thinks like that about science. Rather than looking at science and seeing this kid has an interest, let's push them. They go, this kid has an interest, but actually only a C-level student. Let's funnel them away from a science career and encourage them to go to more soft careers, which I hate that word because every career has a skill, but you know, they'll push them more towards the humanities or something like that. Yeah. So imagine you're a poor kid from an inner city school, right? You have high turnover of teachers and teachers that keep telling you you can't do it. You don't have any science capital because your mum's a cleaner. Dad's not around. You're looking after your, your brothers and sisters all the time. Your school doesn't, you know, sort of push your interest and gate keeps you away from it. And then society in itself, because you don't have the money to reach work experience, because you don't have the contacts, further bats you down. And that's why we have the profession we have. Now, it's not an exclusive problem to us. People often look at the medics and go, well, look at the medics. They've done really good. Their ethnic diversity is great. Mm. Sure, dial down into it. 80% of medical students come from 20% of schools. So yeah. actually, all we've done is encourage those that have the, the background to consider a medical career. We've not done anything about the social inequalities that leave so many behind. Yeah. I'm going to stop talking now, but that's the sort of the complexity of how we increase access. It's not straightforward. Yeah. And it, like you say, it's so multifaceted. Mm. And I, the one thing that resonates with me is the fact that so many people, and I, I know some people like, you know, th through church and different bits and bobs like that, you know, the kids are great. I, and I, I have to say, I look at this now with, you know, the benefits of a few winters behind me and go, do you know what? you'd be an absolutely awesome vet you like you just you engage with people you're good at communication and stuff like that you know skills that when i started at that school com skills was like a new thing mm -hmm. and, and we were really lucky because we had carol gray at liverpool who was one of the you know very very uh, founding members of this sort of com skills generation for vet students but so many kids now don't realize where their strengths are and of course they're drawn to things that are socially apparent to them um, and you know you see them on Facebook you see them on Instagram you see them on all of these other areas of profession and that's what they engage with and I think as a profession that's maybe what we we don't do particularly well and I don't know whether you how you feel about that but to me I think there are you know of course there's downsides to being a vet and you know we're all palpably aware of them but there's some fantastic sides to it as well I, I still think our profession is overwhelmingly positive and I wouldn't choose to do anything else. But you're right. Yeah. 
we don't engage with the people that we should engage with. And as a profession, we still have this attitude, and I'm talking broad strokes here, we still have this attitude that academic ability is the be all and end all. Mm. And if you're not a straight A student, then you're never going to make it. You're not capable of making it. When in reality, if we step back, it is about comm skills. Mm. Of course, you need to have, a, you, you need to have a, a, a basic academic ability. You can learn all that. But the reality yeah. is your clients are only going to only gonna sort of accept you and follow your advice and have positive outcomes if they trust you. And that comes yeah. down to comms. Yeah. But I think the wider thing here is there has to be a profession-wide concerted effort and determination to make a difference. Mm. My, my biggest fear when we start talking about widening access is all the fragmented attempts to do it. Yeah. And that is not going to have the long-term outcome. I, I, I sometimes think that the fragmented attempts make the feel-good factor in that immediate aspect, but the reality is to increase, increase part- and widen participation. Your outcome, the output to show you've had an, a, a, an impact is going to take 10 to 20 years. Yeah. So it's going to take 10 years before you see it in the vet school. It's going to take 20 years before you see it in the profession. And the reality is we all need to come together and do it. And so, you know, BVA held a widening participation workshop with lots of stakeholders talking about this. And, and I, I guess my challenge is we as professionals need to stop perpetuating this fact that we need to be something special to be a vet. Yeah. Fact check, we don't. We're ordinary people who happen to look after animals for a living. Hmm. So we need to stop perpetuating that. There's probably a place for reevaluating what work experience we we need from these students yeah let me ask you something how much did we learn cleaning poop out of kennels for two years how, how, did i really i mean I, I i do run a tidy household now um and now you do but, so but, yeah, you learn, but yeah no i think that's it it's like you know it's the again it's that sort of qualitative versus quantitative yeah. isn't it it's like you know i spent saturday mornings from 14 years old in a vet practice mm-hmm at the bottom of my road, I was really lucky. It was literally 200 yards from the house. And it was with a proper old school vet who's sadly no longer with us. He died, um, I think about 2005, 2006, a guy called John Adams. And he was broad Scott, every consult with a pipe, effing and blinding his way through it. Like, you know, I remember going home from the first ever day there because they, they'd been our family vet for all the time. And that's how I got to, to work there. And I just remember going home, just going, mum, the guy's a maniac. Brilliant vet, like absolutely awesome vet and phenomenal with people. But actually, I spent four years of Saturdays basically working on the reception, which counted as my, you know, seeing practice kind of thing to access. But did it give me a greater understanding of what goes on in the vets? Probably to some degree, but not to a, wow, you know, that's really opened my eyes. It's, you know, thinking back, I spent some time on reception. I wasn't really often in a consult room. I was primarily mm. cleaning kennels. If I saw an op, I was watching an open abdomen. I had no idea what was going on. Actually, to me, I think work experience behind a bar or behind a, in a supermarket is more valuable because what matters in what we do is how we communicate. So I think there's a place there. And unfortunately, there's still this school of thought that in order to get into vet school, you absolutely have to have spent your time cleaning kennels because that above all shows your determination and passion for veterinary medicine. And I yeah. refute that. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. Absolutely disagree with that. And, and I've had conversations with people who, who don't understand the concept. You know, they'll say to me, well, anyone can get a Saturday job in, in a practice. No, they can't. Not no, nowadays, can't. you can't, no. Which, which practice, you know, they have safeguarding issues they now need to consider. Unless you know someone who knows someone who knows someone, yeah. the likelihood of you getting a weekend job is tiny. 
and you gain more. And I think I put yourself in a position to be a better vet use, doing things like supermarket work. So we need to reframe that. Actually, COVID, if anything, has taught us that there's a really good virtual world that we could be using. Yeah. And so, of course, you can't make up for the physical handling of animals or anything like that on work experience. But, for example, the Royal College of GPs have a virtual uh, work experience platform. It's three days. One day's of lectures, one day's you watch videos. So they hired actors and, you know, you see consults with, with doctors, with nurse practitioners, with receptionists, and it's done in a way that you see what's going on, but then there's speech yeah. bubbles that explain what they're thinking about. So you get a real understanding of what it's like to be in a practice. And then you get one day in a practice, one day that's a structured day in a practice. You follow the relevant people. I bet you if we had that sort of system in the veterinary profession, three days, would make do much yeah. more for learning than two years in a kennel. In a kennel. Oh, definitely. I remember going, I must have been about 16 or 17, and I actually met some mates who are now also vets on this thing. I'm sure it was called like Vet 6 or something like that. Yeah, and it I was at that. Nottingham Uni. It was long before yeah. Nottingham had a vet school. I think um, I've been to that. Yeah, and, and, but it was like 3 o'clock in the morning one morning, you got woken up and taken oh, out I to a lamin. And you yeah. think like that was, that was cool because that actually yeah. gave you a focused condensed window of time and you know those yeah. of you who are, are, are that way inclined in the profession and i dare say you know can can make things move these are things to absolutely look at and say look you know and it might be that as a as a profession we could go right you know for every kid who's paying to this we're going to give someone who doesn't have the same access right it's a free place you know things like that but i'm going to challenge you there should any of this be paid for or yeah. actually as a profession you know if, if we are genuinely talking about widening access then we as a profession need to find the money from somewhere. And there is money floating about for this sort of thing to set up genuine winding participation schemes because those with contacts are not the ones that need the help. Yes. It's those without, it's those without contacts. It's those that come from inner cities or rural locations where they don't have a farming background because Mm. you know, you do have disadvantaged rural communities as well. So it is, there's a wider thing here. We need, and uh, we need to have a system in place or develop a system that is work experience that is accessible and accepted by all vet schools that is in geographical location outside of the vicinity of vet schools. Because the other issue we have is vet schools have very good learning participation programs that work around their individual yeah. locations. Mm. Cornwall, Outer Hebrides, but a large swathes of Northern England. No vet schools there. How, mm. do, we, how do we reach those kids? So... I think it's something that needs to be a concerted effort and the finances behind it as well. Yeah. And I think that's something that, like I say, for me is there's so many people doing great things in the profession. And I think, you know, you and I are great. We can have these conversations and we can say, you know, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is a possible solution. This is a possible solution. But there's so many other people that have similar thought processes. And I, for one, would absolutely say, look, if you've got, ideas on this get in touch with us get in touch with the bva getting you know don't sit on ideas because if it's something that you're passionate about you know just imagine being that you know the person that helps to shape the evolution of access to the veterinary profession like what a great legacy to leave behind i agree with you <laughs> but if there's anyone out there listening that has the money to do something like this i would urge them to get in touch because the reality is we've done this work you know, yeah. we did our winding participation roundtable. We've, we've worked with the spires. We know what could work. Mm. The problem is funding. It's yeah. funding and buy-in and, and the concern of fragmented attempts. So, you know, BVA, 
BVEDs, BVLGBT+, spoon holders. We've all had these conversations about sort of council with us, but ultimately it's about money and desire. And we mm. as a profession need to stop making excuses for where we're at and yes. making excuses like, but spending a sat- every Saturday for three years in, in the kennels <laughs> is vital to show you make a good vet and you have the determination nonsense. I was going to say something yeah. else. This is one like, like <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we can we can we can edit in a beep. Um, <laughs> but it's total nonsense. And so, yeah, I mean, it's complex. It's not straightforward. We still have a profession that thinks we are elite in some way, and we're not. We're just ordinary people. We still have a profession that perpetuates this thought process that you have to be elite in order to get into it. Nonsense. But we also have challenges that there are systemic problems that we need to consider how we can help get over them. Yeah. And I think also, I think something that I'm always keen to point out is that some of the best vets I know are still from the elite. You know, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I don't think there's, there's something to, to hide. And I think people, as you said earlier, people sometimes think you're having a go at them for being privileged. There's absolutely no shame in that. But I think being privileged gives you a massive opportunity to help others who are not as privileged. Um, and it's hard because your experiences are different. And sometimes you just cannot relate to the problems. Like for me, I was so blessed that my mum and dad would drop everything. I mean, they, they must have been, there were three, there's three, well, there were, there still are three of us. Um, and they must have been like passing ships in a night for the best part of a decade because of taking me to one place, taking my sister to another place, then taking my brother elsewhere, then picking us up. Um, and you think, you know, that is a blessed problem to have. And yet, you know, there's people who, you know, getting engagement from their parents for them is, is the biggest challenge of their daily existence. So I would actively encourage anyone to take any opportunity to speak to anyone you have any exposure to about the profession and, and to engage with organizations like the BVA like the webinar vet, like any, anybody who has got any sway in this profession. And in 10 years time, wouldn't it be great if we could turn around and go, oh my God, look at, look at the profession now, you know? And I, I think it's really important to reiterate what you've said. I am not, I'm not attacking nor criticizing those that have had a private education, for example, or those that come from a, a whole, you know, stream of veterinary surgeons, for example. What I am saying is that it shouldn't be a profession that completely excludes the others. Mm. The others should have the opportunity to consider this as a profession for them and at least put in an application. If they then put in an application and they don't get through, well, actually, that's different. Mm. But we have a system that means many people won't even put that application in. And that is a problem. That is not the way that we increase diversity. And we all bring different skill sets. You know, I think we all have to acknowledge that our different backgrounds is a positive thing, particularly when it comes to engaging with clients, for example. You know, I, I like to think I'm a good communicator, but I would suspect that my communication with people, you know, from South London, that when I'm not speaking like this, speak like I would normally speak, actually, me as their vet would probably engage them more in their, in their um, pets healthcare, for example. So just because it's, you're right, it's not a criticism on those that are publicly educated. You know, if, you, if you've got those opportunities, take them, grab them with both hands. But we as a profession need to acknowledge that not everyone does. And if you keep banging the same drum, you get the same tune. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's a monumental task 
and I think you know it's it's sometimes tasks like these you know this is there is this picture of a vet that society has which is blonde haired full head of hair chap middle ages check shirt chinos and and that is you know when you speak to everybody and I know when I speak to people they say oh god you're a vet it's like but you're scouse I sat there thinking like, oh, dude, ouch. But the interesting fact is that is probably not actually the demographic of our profession anymore. Absolutely. Like, you know, because when I actually... Because female. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, you know, you look at it now and I go to them, well, actually, I, I, in, in the 20 practices that I work in, you know, I'm probably one of about 10 blokes across all of those practices. But interestingly, and, and this is probably one for us down the line, in, in ownership, obviously there's the corporate change. But there is still this huge swathe, and I'm noticing more and more female owners of practices and female founders of practices. But until recently, there'd been this massive bias towards male, middle-aged owners of practices. And it, it shows that we can change because now you're seeing this new generation of practices come in that are founded by women, that have been bought by women, that are run completely by women. And I think, you know, there's this real interesting, we, we've seen change adopted by the practice and embraced by the profession. And to me, that shows that we're not a profession that is incapable of change. <laughs> COVID shows you that. <laughs> Almost Perhaps overnight. in a slightly more succinct fashion. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, like to me, that shows that actually changing access to the profession is not impossible. No, it's not. But you've highlighted two, uh, I mean, there might be things for different uh, days, but the, the, the gender thing about women and the, the change in practice ownership, there is still a lack of gender equality in the profession. And that's where we're, we're having issues. You know, there's good, and, and I think gender equality and diversity is something else that we should touch on a different one. But it comes back to role models. The core of this is what you're talking about is role models. Now, if we just step back a second and look at the, and just think about the television, and I'm not going to name programs if you look at the television and tv programs that are directly involved in vets and, and I, i'm generalizing here but overwhelmingly the middle-aged white men that mm. are the main people involved you know in my mind i am thinking of three main programs one based in the north one based in the south and one based <laughs> all over the country north and south based practices overwhelmingly white middle-aged men and certainly their main character, I say characters, they're people, but their main veterinary surgeon involved is a white middle-aged man. Mm. This other program has got a better spread. It's almost 50, there's an odd number of them, but it's almost 50-50 in terms of gender and it has ethnic diversity as well. Mm. If you're a kid looking up, let's say you are, I don't know, a black boy or a young girl from a traveler community. You look up and none of them look like you, none of them. Mm. None of them have your background. Therefore, there's no role modeling there. But on top of that, you probably go to a school that educationally gatekeeps you and says, well, no, no, you're not clever enough. You're not elite enough. You can't do science. You don't have a background that provides you the science capital. You're doomed to fail before you start. And mm. that is wrong. Now, there'll be people listening that go, identity politics is all nonsense. If you're good enough to be a vet, you'll get there. No, what we need to acknowledge is that it's the barriers that we put in place that are the problem because that person never gets the chance to prove they're good enough. And that mm. is the issue. Yeah. And I think that to me, and it's interesting looking at the, the programs over the, the years, 
and I think vets in practice and vet school had, you know, there was, there was a good mix of, of blokes and, and, and girls on it. And at the same time, I look at, you know, that, that sort of traditional vet role model of James Herriot that, you know, yeah. that, that is, you know, when people talk about vets, you know, I have, I have mates that, you know, I've got me in their phone as Ben Vittenry, you know, and, and things like that. And, and you think, you know, actually, these have been drilled into people's expectations of what a vet is for 30, 40 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that, that is, it's ingrained. It's ingrained um, in society as far as even educational establishments. Yeah. So teachers in secondary and primary schools see this as being a vet. When you're presenting yeah. with a kid that doesn't fit that, they go, oh, no, 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 too hard. Off you go. Let's go a different way. So who does the responsibility lie with Everyone. to say, right, okay, this is what we do? Everyone. It's such a, and, and, this is, and this is the thing. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, to me, inclusion is the easiest bit to fix, right? Mm. But the diversity aspect is the harder bit because it is so complex. It comes from our ingrained, our ingrained thought processes that we're probably not even aware of. It comes from, and, and I think if I step back, if, if I step back, I have my biases as well. And sometimes they come out and I have to really check myself. And so we all have our ingrained thought processes on what makes a good vet, what doesn't, what background makes a good vet. We then have the systemic problems of educational gatekeeping, lack of science capital. We have the barriers to entry to vet schools, such as work experience and so on. And so I don't think your answer is we, there's one individual person. I think we as a profession need to stop. We need to stop with this perception that we are some kind of elite. We're not. We're just people doing a job that we enjoy doing. And we need, and we need to stop telling kids, you'll never make it. It's too hard. It's terrible. We, we need to stop that. We, I believe, as... So the educational gatekeeping, the problems with systemic education is perhaps slightly out of our reach. You know, short of lobbying and things like that, which BVA does do educational lobbying, that needs a whole massive sort of change. And, yeah. and that isn't within any of our remits. What is within our remits, however, is to work together to set out an outreach program that works. Not one where you drop into a, into a classroom and walk out and never come back again. It has to be a sustained outreach project with mm. various touch points along the way to keep these kids going. But that needs funding. And in a way, it also needs egos to be dropped, which sounds very controversial. But it needs... It needs everyone to come together. Sounds a bit like COVID again, but it needs everyone to come together and to work together for a solution. Because if we keep doing these tiny little programs here, there and everywhere, there's no coherent yeah. structure. There's no long-term sustainable change and we're missing kids all along the way. Yeah. So I think we have a duty to talk about our profession in a positive light, to encourage kids to stop thinking we're the be all and end all. We're not, we're vets. We put fingers up dog's bottoms and hands up cow's bums you know let's <laughs> <laughs> and if and you're doing need... it the other way around um i would suggest that you really take some <laughs> some guidance in your um, in your clinical exams of patients <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and actually you know i guess my plea here would be if there is anyone listening that thinks do you know what i have the systems in place to help with this or i have the funding more importantly because i think that's part of it you know that could help with this, I would urge them to get in touch. I have the answers as to what the problems are and what could work. The mm. answers I don't have is how we get it out there because it involves such a big collaboration and I'm happy to be the broker of conversations. So if anyone's listening and they think they have 
the technological or the clinical idea to make a sustainable long-term change or the funding get in touch i think you know let, let's start something so yes we all need to be involved but we need to be involved together to yeah make and it's interesting isn't it because like you know we talk about every practice now is switched on or at least i hope most practices are switched on to client engagement mm-hmm. but as a profession we absolutely have to be switched on to the next generation mm-hmm. engagements which means you know, in the same way that we send our clients reminders for their flea and mm-hmm. wormers and reminders for their flu vaccines, mm-hmm. uh, their flu vaccines. Uh, that's <laughs> you you, can, you can tell that I've been watching far too much vaccination at <laughs> the moment with COVID. So, you know, reminders for their vaccinations, reminders for X, Y, Z to keep them engaged with us as a practice. So my challenge to you is to broaden that, to widen your gaze and to say, mm-hmm. right, let's do this bigger and broader to the youth and say, and you know what, actually, maybe it's not even to the youth. Maybe it's the people who are in their early twenties who haven't even considered veterinary practice Mm. and go, do you know what guys, actually you could do this. But as Daniela rightly says, and I think it is the perfect point to end on, we have a responsibility, whether we like it or not to our profession, because actually if, if we don't engage with it and we don't involve it's distinctly possible that there may be no profession in years ahead and it might just become something else that is swallowed up by the evolution of, of sort of you know the industrial world and becomes just another industry and i think just to add on that before we finish two things there will be people listening that will be thinking this is nonsense if we do this capable people are going to miss out on places because there's increased competition my thought back to them There's already capable kids missing out because they don't even consider this profession as something for them. Mm. Secondly, the why. To me and to you, the answer here is it's the right thing to do to facilitate more people to come into the profession. For those hard-nosed people amongst you who don't want to accept the moral reason for it, if you want to make a business reason, there is very good evidence out there that diverse teams result in better outcomes. So if we want a good future for our profession, we can improve it with a more diverse team. And the only way we do that is by encouraging kids from diverse backgrounds to enter our profession. And I think for me, one of the greatest pieces of evidence for that is that I became a vet because of my touch points with veterinary professionals as a kid. Like John Adams and, and a vet called Nicola Southern who were fundamental. I actually found the letter that Nicola wrote as a piece of supporting literature for me to get into vet school. I found that when I moved house recently and it very much sort of made me reflective. And and as you do, I actually got a bit choked up at the time. But the engagement of those vets in my personal journey has stuck with me and will stick with me for my entire professional journey. So my challenge to you as individuals would be, wouldn't it be great if in 20, 30, 40 years time, there's some adult who's turned around going, do you remember such and such? I became a vet because of him, or I became a vet because of her, or I became a vet because of them. And actually, that, that just, that sits nicely to me. So yeah, I think that's the perfect point to end on. Daniela, as always, thank you. I'm aware that 
we're brilliant at keeping to our sort of 20 minute time oh, frame perfect, for, for our conversations. Those of you <laughs> that have complaints about our ramblings, please do send them in to, sorry, but you don't have control over how long our episodes are at webinarbet.com. <laughs> so yeah, we shall be doing several episodes on this, looking at the various different aspects of people's journey into veterinary medicine, science, life. The next one we're going to look at is the the sort of the the diversity and, and the sort of challenges that go with vet student life and then we'll move on from there i'm fairly sure you can follow the pattern from that point but yeah daniela as always thank you and yeah the next one will be coming soon mm-hmm.